Well, hey, good morning, Harvest. How we doing? Good. It's good to see you. Do me a favor. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke 16. We're going to be in Luke 16, and we're going to kind of get into things really quickly this morning. We have a, a ton to cover. I hope your uh, week is going well. And, and I want to start off this morning um, by telling you uh, kind of a secret about me. And this might be dangerous for, for me to share to you, but um, I am the type of person um, that really doesn't like being taken off guard, and I don't like being surprised. And I kind of like to know what I'm getting into. I kind of like to know what's uh, ahead of me. I'm not a big fan of surprises. So uh, again, this might be dangerous to share, but if you really want to mess with me, like one of the worst things you can do to me is just set up an appointment to have a meeting with me, but don't tell me why you want to meet. Just be like, hey, Cal, I just want to talk to you. And I'll be like, why? And I'll I'll tell you when I I see you. Like that will drive me nuts. And it's probably my fault. It's probably because I'm a control freak. But I really just, like, I would rather know I'm walking into a bad meeting than have no idea of what I'm getting myself into. And so because I'm wired like that, um, I want to be fair to you today and and let you know right from the get-go what this morning is going to look like. And uh, this morning, we're going to look at a passage where Jesus teaches on hell. And uh, I would just say that um, this morning is going to be heavy It might not feel like a normal sermon you hear from me. Like if you came to church today and you're like, wow, I'm really looking forward to what Cal's gonna say that makes me chuckle. Um, I'm sorry to disappoint you. There's not a ton of moments of lightness and humor in this message. I think this is a weekend where we're going to feel the full weight of God's word. And I wanna warn you because I, I just believe Um, There's very few things that we like to talk about or think about less than the reality of an eternal hell, isn't there? Like I would make the argument that we kind of go out of our way to try to minimize or or try to delegitimize or, or, or make hell this thing that can't possibly be real. Like think about how we even use the word hell. We've turned it into a common curse word to try to minimize its reality and its power. Who the hell are you? We had a hell of a good time. See you in hell, right? We go out of our way to minimize its reality. And I would say you see this in culture all the time as well, right? Like in movies or in TV shows, there will be episodes dedicated to kind of making fun or poking fun at this idea of hell. In fact, just yesterday, um, our kids went and they hung out with grandma and grandpa for an afternoon. So Mary and I had one of those nice moments where we were home and alone and we just decided to watch some TV and we were just flipping through uh, channels and there was a, a show we were watching and the whole episode was kind of making fun fun of hell. Like, I think if we could, if we were honest, if we could just push this idea of eternal punishment for sin and this idea of hell as far away as we could, I think we would like to just disregard it or not think about it at all. The problem with that is that Jesus taught about hell all the time. I don't know if you know this or not, but Jesus teaches more about hell than Peter, James, and Paul combined in the New Testament. This idea of hell was a go-to topic of conversation for Jesus. And um, here's what I would say. This is not a message I'm necessarily looking forward to preaching. Like I promise you this week, I haven't been like, man, I'm so pumped to preach on hell this week. It's gonna be awesome. 
But the problem is, is if we're going to be a church that lifts high the authority of God's word, I can't shy away from what God's word talks about. It is impossible to, to both embrace the teachings of Jesus and reject the reality of an eternal hell. Or maybe a more clear way to say this is, you don't get Jesus and get to disregard hell. That's not how it works. Charles Hodge, a Princeton Theological Seminary professor wrote this talking about hell. He said, it is a doctrine which the natural heart revolts and struggles against and to which it submits only under the stress of authority. The church believes the doctrine because it must believe it or renounce faith in the Bible and give up all the hopes founded upon its promises. C.S. Lewis in his book, The Problem of Pain writes, he says about hell, if he had his druthers, hell would be a doctrine he would willingly remove from Christianity. But he says it has the full support of scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. Okay, I want you to hear me right now. Hell should terrify you. But the purpose of my message this morning is not to terrify you. Here's why because it wouldn't serve any purpose. The fear of hell keeps nobody out of hell. Nobody gets to get out of hell because they're scared of hell. Or maybe a better way to say it is, heaven is not a place that's full of people who are scared of hell. Heaven is a place that's full of people who love Jesus and have submitted and yielded to him as Lord over their lives. The fear of hell gets nobody out of hell. My goal is not to terrify you, but to help you understand the biblical reality of hell through the words of Jesus. So with that being said, let's look at Luke 16, starting at verse 19. Here's what it says. It says, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and in fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things and Lazarus in like manner, bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able and none may cross from there to us. And then he said, I beg you, Father, send them to my father's house for I have five brothers so that, they may, so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will, be, will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. All right, so Jesus tells a story here describing two men. And what I want you to see is he describes two very contrasting lives. And he goes out of his way to show how different this rich man and Lazarus are from one another. And I'll go to the next slide. You should have this in your notes if you're keeping notes. Um, here's what you see about the rich man. Well, obviously you can tell from his name, he's rich. 
It says that he wore fine clothes. He wore purple linens. Purple was the color of royalty. It was the color of wealth. It was the color of power and authority. He had access to everything he could have ever wanted in life. It said that he feasted on food every single day, not not just ate food, but feasted, lived a life of abundance, that when he died, he had a funeral. That means that he had family and people loved him and people cared for him and people mourned the fact that he was gone. He lived a life full of relationships and friendships, but ultimately he doesn't have an identity. We don't know his name. Lazarus, on the other hand, was poor. He lived a life that was not covered in fine linens, but covered in sores. That he just would hope that a scrap off the rich man's table would fall to him, that he might have something to eat, that dogs would be the ones that would care after him and lick his sores. It says that when Lazarus dies, there's no mention of any burial. That means that Lazarus most likely had no one in his life that cared about him didn't have any family, didn't have any friends, didn't have anyone mourn the fact that he was gone when he was dead. He just was removed from society. But Lazarus has a lasting identity. He has a name. And so I think the first question we need to ask ourselves is, why does Jesus not give us the name of the rich man? And yet we know the name of Lazarus. And this has everything to do with identity. Only one of them had an identity that lasted towards eternity. One of them had a lasting identity and that was Lazarus. You see, the rich man's identity was in his wealth and his power and his status. And what Jesus is making very, very clear is everything that the rich man lived for here on earth was of no value to him in eternity. He no longer had fine clothes. He no longer was feasting on great food. He no longer was surrounded by friends and loved ones. He was alone and he was in torment and he had no identity. But Lazarus did because Lazarus was known by God. And something that's really cool that I I found out this week is actually the meaning of the name Lazarus means the one that God has helped. So even in describing who Lazarus is, there's this gospel presentation that ultimately God knew Lazarus, God loved Lazarus, and God had helped Lazarus, that Lazarus had a relationship with God. And so he was a child of God and had an identity into eternity. And one of the things you need to understand, church, is that part of being in hell is that your identity is that you are separated from your creator. Part of your main identity in hell is that you are not known by God. You have been forsaken. You've been cast aside. You have no relationship and will have no relationship with your creator. Look at verse 23. It says, and in Hades being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And so in this story, Jesus is talking about Sheol. And I need to explain this because Sheol isn't hell, but Sheol is on the way to hell. Think of it as like a pit stop along the way. And here's what happened. In the Old Testament, when someone died, they would go to Sheol. And I want you to think of it like a layover. Like how many of you have ever gone on a trip to Arizona or have flown to Arizona? 
Anyone? Okay, a couple of you have. So, so what they, you do is if you fly out of Grand Rapids, you can't directly fly to Arizona, or maybe you can now, but you used to not be able to. And if you flew Delta, you would have to fly to Atlanta, which is insane because it's the opposite way of Arizona. And you would have a layover there, and then you would fly to Phoenix. Thank you, Delta, for that um, brilliant piece of business. But I, I never understood that. Why am I flying the opposite way uh, on my way? But Sheil was like a layover. And if you want to think about it as a layover, in Shield, there's two terminals. One terminal is called Abraham's bosom or paradise. And that was for people who knew God, who followed God, who were loved by God and had a relationship with him. And they were in paradise. They were reunited with loved ones. They were in community and they were waiting for Jesus to defeat sin and death and for them to be able to go to heaven. The other terminal is called Hades. And that is a place of torment. And those are for people who do not have a relationship with God, who are not forgiven, and they're waiting to go to hell. All right, so here's a question for you. Maybe we'll take a quick uh, quiz. In Sheol, is Abraham's bosom or paradise, is it still open for business? Thumbs up if you think it is, thumbs down if you think it's not. Is Abraham's bosom still open for business today? Let me see some thumbs, make some guesses. I got some thumbs up, I got some thumbs down, I've got some sideways, which is really non-committal and lame. Um, here's what I would say, if you went like this, um, you're incorrect. Because here's what happened, when Jesus died on the cross, and it says he descended into hell and he preached liberty to those who were in captive. So there's this really cool thing that happens that when Jesus, in between dying on the cross and rising from the dead, he went to Abraham's bosom and said, death is defeated, the battle is over, I have won. And he took those who were in that waiting place and brought them into the presence of God. It's why Paul says for us that when we are absent from the body, we are present with the Lord. We don't have to go to a waiting place anymore, but the moment that when we die, if we are in Christ, we are with God in heaven for eternity. Okay, next question. Is Hades still open for business? Give me a thumbs up if you think it is. Give me a thumbs down if you think it's not. Come on, I wanna see more thumbs. Uh, if you went like this, you're wrong. Hades still is, in fact, open for business. And I don't have the time to read these chapters to you, but if you wanna learn more about that, if you read Revelation 19 and 20, it talks about how hell is not opened up until the final judgment when Christ returns. And it says that Satan and the Antichrist, that they are the first to be bound up and thrown in hell. And then there's a final judgment and those in Hades are then sent to hell for eternity. And just as a plug, if you wanna know more about the end times, come join our end times conference in a couple of weeks. You will learn more about this stuff than you could possibly potentially even want to, but it's gonna be great. Um, so here's what I wanna do. I, I wanna focus on the rich man right now. And, and what we're gonna look at is I wanna look at three descriptions of people who are in hell so that we understand kind of what it's like and what it looks like in this place. Look at verse 24. It says this, and he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am in anguish in this flame. Okay, the first thing you need to understand about people who are in hell is they're delusional. They're delusional. And, and we see this from the rich man. Do you see what he asks Abraham to do? 
he asked Abraham to send Lazarus into Hades to him so that he can dip his finger in water and cool the rich man's tongue. He is asking Lazarus to continue to serve him. He is in torment. Lazarus is in paradise, but this rich man still believes that he's better than Lazarus and that Lazarus should obviously be serving him. And he says, hey, tell him to, 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 to make me feel a little bit better, make me have a little bit more comfort. Send Lazarus to me that he might serve me. You see, in his mind, he is clinging to an identity that no longer exists. You see, for the rich man, even in torment, he still views himself as rich and as of status and believing that he is better than Lazarus because of what he had on this earth and in his life. Tim Keller, a pastor and theologian in New York says it this way. He goes, hell is your freely chosen false identity going on forever. Hell is nothing more than what you ask for. Even in his torment, he still doesn't get it. He is delusional. He believes he is the one who should be served by Lazarus. Second thing we see about people in hell is that they're defiant. They're defiant. Notice how in this story, the rich man never asks for forgiveness. He never repents or he never even asks to leave. Like, isn't that amazing? You would think if he was in this spot and he saw Abraham and Lazarus, he would be saying, hey, what do I need to do to get out of this position? Forgive me, I, I, I'm sorry, help me, please let me out of this place, it's awful. But he never does that. He says, hey, bring Lazarus to me to, to help serve me and, and relieve my discomfort. He asked Abraham to send Lazarus to his family so that they don't end up in the same place that he is, but he never once repents over his sin, asks for forgiveness or asks to leave. Some theologians have said that hell is locked, but it's locked from the inside. And one of the things that's hard to, to, for us to understand about hell is we don't have any context for it because what you need to understand is when you're in that place, we, you have no longer have any ability to be sensitive to the Holy Spirit, to repent, to pursue God or have any relationship with him. We don't know what that's like, but there is an inability in this man to repent of his sin or to turn to God in any way his heart is actually hardened to the point where he doesn't even want to leave. Then the third thing we see in hell is that this rich man is deflecting. Look at verse 27. It says, then he said, then I beg you, father, send him to my father's house for I have five brothers that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, then they will repent. And he said to him, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Now, now this is a really interesting conversation, but you see what the rich man's doing? He's taking no responsibility for his condition. He's saying, you need to send Lazarus to, to my family. And again, think about the delusion in that. He is making demands of Abraham. Abraham was a hero of the faith to the Israelite people. He was the father of Israel. And here this man is, is in torment, making demands, saying, I know better than you, Abraham. Here's what you have to do. 
But the argument he's making is, is, listen, if my brothers, if they see a ghost, if they see Lazarus, if they see a sign, then they will repent and believe in God. And Abraham goes, no, they won't. They've been given Moses, the law and the prophets. Well, what's Abraham referring to? He's referring to God's word. He's saying, listen, God has given them everything they need to repent and turn from their sin in God's word. And if they won't listen to them, they're not going to listen to a ghost. But the rich man is saying is, is you didn't give me enough. You didn't give me a sign. You didn't do your job to rightly convince me that I should follow God. He is completely deflecting, not taking any responsibility for his condition. And he's making demands that Abraham do more for his family. Church, look here. In this story, Jesus describes a man that is unrepentant, unwilling to take any ownership of his condition and unwilling to trust God's word. And I would say that both in ministry and in life, I have met far too many people who find themselves in this exact same position, unwilling to repent, unwilling to take any ownership for their sin or the choices that they've made and unwilling to believe and trust and submit themselves to God's word. And those people are setting themselves up for what the rest of their eternity will look like. There are plenty of people who are beginning to experience the early stages of hell on earth because their heart is in the exact same condition as the rich man that Jesus describes in Luke 16. All right, so here's what I wanna do now. I wanna take a good look at what the Bible says about hell itself so that we can better understand it. And we're gonna look at four primary descriptions of hell in the Bible and try to understand what that means from, from God's word. Here's four, four descriptions of hell. Here's the first. Um, it's described as fiery torment. This is the most popular description of hell in the Bible. It is described this way in scripture 27 times. Matthew 25, 41 says, then he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you cursed and into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Luke 3, 17, it's called unquenchable fire. Mark 9, 47 and 48. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out for it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Right, and this is kind of in, in the last maybe couple decades in the, the, the church, this has been a topic of debate. And I've had people ask me like, Cal, do you seriously believe that God would send people to an eternal hell that's filled with fire? Like, do you actually believe that there's a place filled with fire that God's going to send unbelievers to? Here's my answer. I absolutely believe it because scripture demands that I believe it. There is simply too many times it is described in God's word this way for me to overlook it. You, you just can't do it. But here's the other thing I would say, and this is important. If the thing that scares you most about hell is the fire, you don't even begin to understand what hell really is. And let me prove it to you. Jesus, when he was on the cross, right? He had been whipped and lashed 40 times. He had had a crown of, of thorns um, dug into his scalp. He had been nailed onto a cross in his hands and his feet. And there was one moment where he cried out to God in agony. And what did he say? Did he say, my God, my God, these nails really hurt? No, he didn't say that. 
He didn't say, my God, my God, they just dug thorns into my head and I'm bleeding profusely and I can't even see. He didn't say that. He didn't say, my God, my God, I'm suffocating. No, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? See, the agony for Jesus on the cross, far more than the physical pain, was the knowledge that God had turned his back on him and he had been separated from God. The torment in hell that is greater than the physical pain is to know that there is a loving God who created you, who desired to know you, who desired to have relationship with you and give you every good thing into eternity and you will never know that God that your chance is over, it will never change. You will never know the love that you were created for. It's over for you. And you will be wildly aware of that into eternity when you're in hell. The physical pain is only the tip of the spear of the torment that is present in hell. Here's the second way hell is described. We having fun yet? Nervous laughter. Um, Second way hell is described is destruction. And it's described that way 18 times. Matthew 10, 28 says, and do not fear those who kill the body, but, that, but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both the soul and the body in hell. Matthew 7, 13 and 14, enter by the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the way that is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. And so there's this idea that we are destroyed or people in hell are destroyed. And so there's been some theologians that have taken that and have come up with an idea of hell that they call annihilationism. That to be destroyed just means you cease to exist and you're no longer conscious and you're no longer present. So maybe you're punished for some time, but at some point what hell is, is you just don't exist anymore. Um, the problem with annihilationism is it's not found in scripture and that is not the destruction that scripture is talking about. What the Bible means when it refers to destruction, it doesn't mean taken away, but it means broken or destroyed beyond repair. When you think of destruction, I want you to think of a car that's been in a terrible accident and is totaled. Or maybe here's a better way to describe it. Um, about 12 years ago, when Mary and I first got married, we were living in Florida and I was working as a youth pastor at a church in Orlando. And Pastor Ryan, um, who's on staff here and preaches here, he was the worship leader at that same church. And 12 years ago was when the first iPhone, the iPhone one was coming out. And uh, Ryan and I were like, man, we're so pumped about this iPhone. It's going to be amazing. And we had this really great idea. Let's go to the Verizon store and let's camp out the entire night before to make sure we're the first in line to get this phone. And uh, we thought we were so cool. I assure you, we were not. It's one of the dorkiest things we've ever done. It's a little bit embarrassing to even talk about, but we definitely stayed up all night, was outside the Verizon store, which thankfully in Orlando, it never gets colder than like 55 degrees. But we watched some movies and um, at, in the morning, um, Carrie and Mary, our wives brought us Chick-fil-A for breakfast because they felt bad for us. And we thought we were crushing it. And so we get in line, we get the iPhone right away. We're so pumped about it. And then about a week later, Ryan and Carrie went on a, a, a quick vacation and they went on like a three or four day cruise um, in, uh, just off the coast of Florida. And uh, when they got back from the cruise, we were hanging out and I was like, hey guys, how was the trip? And, and Ryan's like, dude, it was incredible except for one part. 
And I was like, oh no, what happened? And he's like, well, on the, the deck of the cruise ship, they had these really incredible saltwater pools where if it got really hot, you could just go in for a dip. And we were just in the pool, we were swimming, we were hanging out and I was in the pool for about 10 minutes. And then I felt by my pockets and I realized my iPhone was in my pockets. And I don't know if you remember this or understand the, the very first version of the iPhone, whatever the exact opposite of waterproof is, that's what the iPhone was. Like if it rained on your phone, it, it was pretty much over. So, so he put it in rice and he was trying to dry it out and, and doing all of the things and it wasn't turning on and it wasn't working. So finally we decided to unscrew the case to see what was going on inside the phone to see, hey, is there any water still there? Can we dry it out more? What can we do? And the second we screwed the case open, um, we saw that the salt from the pool had rusted out everything in the guts of the phone. And in that moment, it was very clear, this phone is destroyed beyond repair. And that's the picture of destruction we see in hell. It's listen, we could still hold the phone. We could see the phone. The phone didn't disappear. It didn't cease to exist, but it was never going to work again. And here's what I mean. What is our created purpose, church? We have been created to know, worship, and love God. Guess what's impossible to do in hell? To know, worship, or love God. Our created purpose is stripped away from us. We are destroyed. We no longer have the ability to do what we were designed to do. We are destroyed. Third thing we see about hell, and this is described in the Bible seven times, is a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. We see this in Matthew 8, 12, in Matthew 13, 42, in Matthew 25, 30, and in Luke 13, 28. And it's described almost the exact same way every time that in this place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it actually is referring to two different things. Weeping, it's this idea of a sorrow over their condition. There's this resignation. This is never going to change. This is never going to end. There's no more chances. I hate that I'm here. I am in torment. There might be regret over the decisions they've made and the lies that they live, but this is a worldly sorrow that never leads to repentance or a change of heart. There is a sadness over a condition, but don't confuse that with a repentance and turning to God for help. And then the other thing that's described is a gnashing of teeth. And what that means is, is there is a growing and continued anger and hatred for God in hell. Gnashing of teeth is described in the books of, of Acts in Acts 7.54 during the stoning of Stephen. And Stephen was the first martyr of the church. And the way he got killed was he preached a message. And after the message, the crowd was so angry with him that they stoned him to death. And in Acts 7.54, it says, now when they heard these things, talking about the crowd, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. So I have a question for you. Have you ever had someone so angry with you, they literally ground their teeth at you? Well, I have, thanks for asking. Happy to tell you about it. Um, I remember, uh, this is about four years ago, four or five years ago, right when I was transitioning out of youth ministry at our church to the lead pastor role, and we had brought Taylor in, and Taylor was going to take lead of youth ministry. And so we did kind of my final summer camp as lead over the high school ministry. And um, at, at camp, we had an incredible week. Taylor was transitioning into the lead role. And while we were at camp, we had a student come to us, and he confessed um, pretty serious drug addiction. And... Um, 
this has happened before. And so what we told the student was, hey, so thankful that you told us this and, and we wanna help you and walk alongside you. But one of the things you need to do is you need to confess this to your parents. We, we, we can't hide this from your folks. You, you need to be open and honest with, with your parents. And um, yeah, yeah, I know, I know I need to tell them. Well, um, we said, listen, if you don't tell your folks, we're gonna have to tell your folks. And so that Wednesday or Thursday after camp, Taylor had coffee with the student and the student had a complete 180 heart change. And when Taylor met with the student, the student's like, I'm not telling my parents. I will never tell my parents. You better not tell my parents. There's, there's nothing that I'm going to do. And so Taylor's like, shoot, we're gonna have to tell the, the, the kids folks. And I could tell Taylor was nervous about the meeting and this was kind of, he was new into this, this type of situation and these are not fun meetings, they're hard meetings. So I said, Taylor, I'll sit in with you and I'll have this meeting with the folks and the student and you. And so we all gathered in my office after a service. And I remember as we were explaining what the kid told us at camp to his parents, the kid just sat there silently and he was so angry at us. He was literally clenching both of his fists like he wanted to punch us and grinding his teeth. And I was like, hey, Tay, welcome to youth ministry. It's great. You know, I'm so, so glad this is your thing now. Um, but that type of anger is this description of gnashing of teeth. And here's what you understand. You need to understand that sin does not end in hell. In fact, it continues and accelerates in hell. There is a growing anger and hatred of God and all things righteous in hell. Hell is you with nothing else but your sinful heart. Okay, so I wanna kinda do something together as a church. Um, think about the areas in your heart that are most prone to sin. What are the most common sins that you wrestle with? What are the things in your life that you feel like, man, these are the things that are first to creep up in my heart when I'm in, not in a good place. What, what is the, the sin in your life that you most often wrestle with? Right, if you have that in your mind, I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them what that is. No, I'm just kidding. You don't need to do that. But if you have that in your mind, turn to the person sitting next to you and say, I know what that is. All right, we, we should all have these things. We all know what these things are. And you don't tell your spouse, I know what your thing is. That was the wrong way to do it. But we all know these things. Okay, this is what hell is. Imagine those things in your heart continuing to grow, continuing to accelerate, continuing to take control and seizing control of your life and not stopping and not slowing down, never having victory, never having freedom for eternity. There is no um, limiter of it. There is no governor on the speed to which that sin accelerates. It is a growing hatred for God for eternity. Sin does not end, it accelerates. And then here's the fourth way it's described. It's described as outer darkness, outer darkness. Matthew 8, 12 says that the sons of kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. And in that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And in this picture of outer darkness, it's a picture of isolation. And I think this is a, a wrong view a lot of people have of hell. A lot of people think hell is going to be a crowded place. Um, you need to hear this. In hell, you are all alone. You are not with anyone. The best way to, to picture this outer darkness is, um, you know, like in every space movie that's ever been made, there's this one point in the movie where while the astronauts in space, they need to leave the space station and fix something on the spaceship. 
And you're always like, don't leave the ship. Something bad's gonna happen. Something bad's gonna happen. And they step outside the ship and they're fixing something. And all of a sudden, like this random meteor shower happens and one of the astronauts gets hit by a meteor and then like they get disconnected and you just see them floating away into space. That's the picture of outer darkness. You are all alone. There is nowhere in scripture that says you are with anyone when you are in hell. You know, Jesus is asked at one point in his ministry, what what is the chief purpose of, of man? What is the greatest commandment? And Jesus says, is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And he says, the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. When you're in hell, you have no ability to love God and you have no ability to love others. You are alone and you are isolated with just your thoughts, your sin, and your regrets for eternity. Our sin not only separates us from God, but it isolates us from one another. Okay, so I wanna take a moment here and and I wanna talk about two objections to hell that that are ultimately wrong, but I I wanna address these because people have objections to hell. And I think the most common one that, that people would argue to say that this can't be a reality is this, is that the punishment is unfair. That if God is just, then how can he punish people for eternity for, for something they only did in a limited amount of time in their lifetime? If you only live 20, 40, 80 years, how can you be punished eternally for those choices? All right, now, before we talk into why that's a, a, a wrong objection, can we at least all appreciate the irony that I've never heard anyone argue that heaven is temporary? Right, right, like we don't have a problem at all with heaven being eternal. In fact, we love that idea. So isn't it amazing how our minds, we want to embrace the good while rejecting the bad and saying, no, God, it's not fair that hell should be eternal, but yeah, totally heaven should be forever. Like it's nonsense, logically. We wanna accept the good and reject the bad, but here's why this is ultimately a wrong objection. First, it concludes that sin ceases in hell. It does not. Sin continues in hell. So when you are in hell, you are sinning for eternity and therefore rightly being punished for your sin into eternity. The other thing it does is it minimizes the offense of sin. You see, we wanna think that sin is only about us and only affects us, but ultimately all of our sin is treason and rebellion against the eternal creator, God of the universe. And because we have sinned against him and because of his greatness and his eternality, the only right punishment for sin is eternal punishment for sin. Here's the second objection. It's this, that how could a loving God allow this, right? If God is really loving, he wouldn't allow people to suffer like this. And to answer this question, I wanna turn to C.S. Lewis. And here's what he says, and I think says so well. He says, in the long run, the answer to all of those who object the doctrine of hell is itself a question. What are you asking God to do? To wipe out their past sins and at all costs to give them a fresh start, smoothing every difficulty and offering every miraculous help? But he has done so on Calvary. To forgive them, they will not be forgive them. To leave them alone, alas, I'm afraid that is what he does. You know, Romans 5.8 says, before God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God has done everything to show us and to save us and to show us his love by sending us Jesus Christ. 
God has already done far more than what we could ever deserve or earn to make a way for us and to give us relationship. He has proven himself to be loving and faithful over and over and over again by giving us his spirit, by by showing us his love, by sending Jesus Christ, by preserving his word so that we may know him. And if we make the willing choice to reject all of that, we are asking to be left alone by God. And that's exactly what hell is. It's God leaving us to our own brokenness and to our own sin. God punishing people for their sin does not make him evil. It makes him just. If God didn't punish sin, he wouldn't be good. And here's what I want to remind you. All sin is completely paid for. The question is, is have you put your faith and hope and trust in what God himself, Jesus Christ, did for you? that he took your punishment, that he took your sin and that you can be forgiven and clean in Jesus Christ by faith in what he did for you or are you going to pay for your sin into eternity? All sin is perfectly paid for because God is just. Okay, and I wanna close by um, asking one more question or looking at one more thing. I wanna talk about two reasons why it's really important for us to understand hell. Two reasons it's important to understand understand hell. Here's the first, it's to make sure I'm not going there. It's to make sure I'm not going there. And listen, hell is awful. And like I said earlier, it should terrify us. And although the fear of hell does not keep you out of hell, we need to be sober to the reality of hell that we might take our faith and lives seriously. The Bible warns us about this. Philippians 2.12 says, Therefore, my beloved, as you've always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Hebrews 9.27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment. So there needs to be this thing where we wake up to the reality that eternity is real. And the decisions we make in this life matter, and we're going to be held accountable. So what I wanna do right now in how we think about this idea of heaven or hell, or are we followers of Christ or not, I wanna drive our hearts right back to what Jesus was driving to in Luke 16. What's your identity? Ultimately, whether or not you're a Christian and follower of Christ has everything to do with identity. What are you putting your hope in? What defines you? And here's what I mean. If you call yourself a follower of Jesus, that means that you are acknowledging that you are a sinner saved by grace and who has been loved by God, right? That all of us would say that none of us deserve God's love, but that we have been saved by this amazing grace and our lives are defined that we have been loved by God. And if that's true, if that's what we say our identity is, then guess what? Then grace and love have to be a major part of how we live and it should define how we interact with others. So let me get really specific right now. Maybe you're here and you're a hard worker. And that's something that's really important to you. And you work hard and you don't cut corners and you've always been a hard worker. Can I ask you a question? How do you view those who are lazy, who aren't hard workers? Do you hate them? Do you abhor them? Do you not wanna be around them? Do you believe that they are less than you? Do you believe that you are better than them because of their shortcomings? Because I would argue if that's how you feel towards people who are lazy, Your identity is not that you're a hard worker, but it's that you're a prideful hard worker. 
But if you're a hard worker and you look at those who are lazy and you love them and you want the best for them and you have grace for them and you're kind towards them, even though they fall short in, in, in that area, then you're not only a hard worker, but you're a hard worker whose heart has been shaped by the gospel and is filled with grace and love. Maybe you're here and you're a very moral person. You're a good rule follower. You do the right things. How do you view people who are immoral? Do you hate them? Do you loathe them? Do you view them as your enemy? Do you look down on them? Do you gossip about them? Do you think you're better than them because of the choices that they've made? Because I would argue if, if, if that's what you do, if that's how you view them, your identity is not that you're just a moral person, but you're a prideful moral person. You sound a lot like the Pharisees. But if you have grace and you have love and your first heart response towards everyone is that, man, I am a sinner that's been saved by grace and has been shown amazing love by God and I wanna reflect that in my relationships with other people, well, then you're a moral person whose heart has been shaped by the gospel that is filled with love and grace. How about this? Are you a political person? Do you care a lot about politics? There's nothing wrong with that. It's fine to care about politics and to care about our country and to, to really be engaged in those things. How do you view the people who have a different political view than you? Do you hate them? Do you abhor them? Do you think they're the enemy? Do you think they're less than you or worse than you? Do you want nothing to do with them? Do you speak evil about them because of their political views? Because if that's the case, then you're not just a political person, you're a prideful political person. But if you love them and you have grace for them and you care about them and you pray for them and you want to engage in a loving way with them, then you're a political person whose heart is shaped by the gospel. We need to make sure our identity is in the right things. And if you're here and your heart is defined by pride, I'm worried for you. The gospel absolutely obliterates our ability to sit in judgment over others and to live with pride. Now, listen, that doesn't mean that we can't point out sin or that we can't say that, that this is right or that this is wrong and this pleases God or this doesn't please God. That doesn't mean we can't speak truth. But if our hearts are defined as pride, looking down on others, um, casting judgment on them, we at a very basic level haven't grasped what Christ has done for us. And then here's the last reason. It's to rightly understand how much Jesus loves us. To rightly understand how much Jesus loves us. When we rightly understand hell, we truly and rightly understand what we have been rescued from and what Jesus had to endure on our behalf. And if you've been at our church, you've heard me say before when describing the gospel that Jesus lived the life that we could not live and he died the death that we deserve. You guys have heard that, right? You need to understand it's actually much more than that. He didn't just die the death that we deserved. He experienced the hell that we will never have to. That in fact, the death that Jesus died was way worse than anything that we will ever know because he experienced the separation from God and punishment of sin that we will never experience because Christ has absorbed all of God's wrath on our behalf. We will never experience a full death because Christ died that death for us. And I wanna end this message with, with a story. There was a pastor who lived in Philadelphia. He lived out on the East Coast and um, his wife uh, died at a tragically young age. And, and so this pastor um, is driving to his wife's funeral and he's got his four kids in the car. So if you could imagine how gut-wrenching that would be driving your kids to your wife's funeral 
and they're in a car and it's a summer day and it's sunny and they're in the right-hand lane. And then all of a sudden on the left-hand side of them, a truck passes them and it's a big semi-truck. And as it passes by, it casts a shadow over their car. And the pastor looks back at his kids and he says, hey kids, I have a question for you. Would you rather be hit by that truck or by the truck's shadow? And instantly the little one speaks out and says, well, I'd rather be hit by the shadow. And the pastor looks back at his kids and he goes, hey kids, it's gonna be okay because that's exactly what Jesus did for mommy. You see, Jesus willingly stepped in front of the truck so that mommy will only ever have to experience the shadow that Jesus willingly chose to experience the full reality of death and separation from God so that we will only ever know what it means to pass through the shadow of death. The moment we breathe our last breath here on earth, we are united with God in eternity. We will never know what it means to be separated from God because of Jesus. And it's only when you rightly understand hell Will you truly understand how much Jesus loves you and how much you are truly worth to him? For the believer, hell is actually good news because it's, it's not something that we look down on others for, but we understand how much God loves us and what we have been spared from. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. And I wanna close this message a little bit differently. Um, I, I just want you to take a moment And I want you to think about this one thing. Um, What is the thing that in your heart competes most with God for your worship and your affection and adoration? What is the, the, the thing that you are tempted to run to and worship and chase after more than God? And here's why I want you to think about that in this moment. Um, I have sat with and pastored and talked to so many people who sat in your chairs, who were at services, who raised their hands in worship, but ultimately walked away from the Lord because they believed that there was something else that was going to satisfy them more than Jesus Christ. Maybe it's a relationship, maybe it's control, Maybe it's anger. And what I just am praying that you see clearly right now, there is nothing else in your life that is going to love you like Jesus Christ love you. And if you choose to run after anything else, you are running after something that's going to lead you exactly where you don't wanna go. Dear Heavenly Father, I um, thank you for this time. I thank you for this church. I thank you for your word. I'm thankful for a group of people who are willing to sit under the authority of your word, God. That's a miracle in itself. And um, God, I'm just really praying right now that if there are people in this room who when they think of hell, their hearts are filled with horror and fear and uncertainty because they're not sure if they've ever trusted you as Lord and Savior of their life, if they're not sure that they're saved, God, I pray that you would give them the courage to come find someone and talk to someone immediately after this service. Let's not, I'm praying that, that people would make decisive decisions and not leave here wondering. And God, for those of us who are here and have been forgiven and know that we're in your family, God, I just pray that this would just be a sobering reminder 
of the reality of sin and the um, weight of eternity. God, I just pray that you would root out in our hearts any pride or self-righteousness or, or this awful idea that we are better than anyone else. God, would you continue to make us humble? Would you continue to, to grow in us a heart of faithfulness and surrender to you? We love you. It's in your son's name we pray, amen.